Thank you for checking out the Mercy Hill Church Sermon Podcast. If you would like to know more about Mercy Hill, you can visit us on the web at mercyhill.cc. Heavenly Father, we we thank you that you your word um, still speaks to us today. Lord, we just pray your blessing over John this morning as he brings your word, that you would give him your words to speak. Lord, you would open our ears to hear and to respond to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Brian. Appreciate that. Good morning, everybody. It's good to be here. It's good to be together singing God's praises. I've been so tremendously blessed. This, the past, we did uh, the series from the, the pew to the pulpit for the month of July and, and last week, and I cannot tell you what a tremendous blessing it was to be able to hear God's word proclaimed from many different voices. And it was such a blessing to me just to see how uh, just the, the way the church responded with faith and just embracing that and, and receiving that. And just, I just want to thank Corey and Travis and Luke and Phil and Ryan this morning. Just for you guys, thank you so much for bringing God's word to us. It is a blessing, and we really deeply appreciate the time you put in and the way you so you sought to serve this church and to serve us by bringing God's word to us. So thank you so much for that. Um, I also wanted to take a moment as well to uh, to welcome Adam and Chrissy back from their honeymoon. Good times. Um, welcome back, guys. It's glad you guys are here. Uh, we also just want to just give you an update. We, we, we had Share the Rock this week. And I don't know, we, were we showing pictures at all? Did we get those pictures? Okay. We'll get those next week. But we've got some pictures. We had 100 campers this week at Share, this week at Share the Rock. And it was a great time together of just playing basketball and declaring God's word. And so what a, what a phenomenal combination of things, right? We, had the, we partnered with New Life Church in Highland, and they provided volunteers and coaches, and we, we were able to bring volunteers and coaches. And so we had 100 campers, about 25 volunteers, uh, and the word of God was, was preached. And so we partnered with uh, Dan Vaudry, the head men's basketball coach at Purdue Calumet, and he loves the Lord with all of his heart. And he is more than thrilled to use his platform, his coaching abilities to not only teach basketball, but to proclaim the name of Jesus Christ. So what a great time. I just wanted to just point out real quick and especially thank uh, Deb and Tom for your hard work. And our, there you guys are. Got the Share the Rock shirts on. Sweet. That's it, man. That's, that's commitment right there. Um, we have a little gift for you. It's in my, I'll make sure I get it to you after the service. I'll, re, I'll try to remember it this time. So we just want to thank you guys. Thank you, Deb and Tom, for just your sacrifice, your service, the way that you so faithfully uh, take time off of work, make sure everything's going well, take care of the kid who, who's bl- you know, bloody nose and blood's all over the floor, and you're there sitting next to him, cleaning it up and doing all that kind of good stuff. So thank you. We deeply, deeply appreciate it. All right. Now let's turn over to uh, John, 
the Gospel of John, first chapter. And as you turn there, uh, we are we are in the process of launching a series called Counter Cultural, and we had gone through a number of of things that we thought that the way that God's Word presents things and the way that our culture understands things in our day and age are probably in different places. And so we, we began to look at this series talking about marriage and sexuality and money and spiritual gifts and just trying to figure out, okay, what does God's Word have to say about these things and how does our culture understand these things? And so this is going to be the, the kind of launching point for that. And in doing so, we need to understand how do we engage with culture. Now, I want to pause here for a second, because this fall we are launching into a series on 1 Corinthians. And I'm excited to launch in the series on 1 Corinthians. And this week, as I'm looking through the different topics that we're going to cover in the countercultural series, and as I begin to consider what's in 1 Corinthians, they're almost identical. Okay, so I'm like thinking to myself, well... Do we just launch into 1 Corinthians at this point, or do we do the countercultural thing and then go into 1 Corinthians? So I haven't, we haven't quite decided yet. I'm talking with, with some of the elders this morning. Hey, what, what should we do? Should we kind of cover both? Do we just launch into 1 Corinthians and then kind of take some time in the middle of that to talk about the countercultural thing? So please pray for us as we discuss those things and decide, God, what would you have for our church? But we're excited about 1 Corinthians as well because it, it is a powerful book. And the, the way in which we understand church today, the way in which we do church, is primarily because of all the mess that was in the Corinthian church. So because they had messed things up so bad, now we know how to do things right, <laughs> pretty much. So we're thankful for their screw-ups. But we want to just be sensitive to the Holy Spirit and what, the way God is leading us as His people to understand, God, what would you have for the church? So please just pray with us as we, we cover that. All right, engaging with culture. As we talk about engaging with culture, we have to understand culture is this big, broad word that, that is defined in many different ways. And when Brian Hogwarf and I went to Africa uh, a couple years back in May, it was so, the, the cultural differences were so stark. I remember one time we had, we had driven halfway across the country of um, Zimbabwe. Went to this remote part. It took four or five hours of driving on some of the most treacherous roads you can imagine. And we went with a, a, another pastor and a couple other people just crammed into this car. So we're driving halfway across the country. And we... We were able to serve the church there. It was a wonderful experience. And then we're driving back, and we're exhausted because the, the conditions that we were sleeping in weren't quite the, we'd say, the American conditions that we're used to. And so there's like, hey, just, you know, we're sleeping in this place, and the door is kind of, it was like a, I don't know if it was a, it wasn't really a hotel because no one stayed there. It was like this kind of vacant building that we stayed in. And there was like, they're like, oh, there's big snakes around, so just be careful for the big snakes. And then right before I went to Africa, I was foolish enough to watch this National Geographic show on spitting cobras that were in Africa, and they would spit across the room and blind your eyes. And so I'm in my bed all night long with this kind of door that's creaky, and 
kind of like a vacant building, sort of. We were kind of like squatting in this place, and all I could think about was spitting cobras and stuff. And so we had that for a couple nights, and then we're driving back, and as we get back kind of into town, the, one of the guys in the car is like, hey, I would like to introduce you to my wife and my kids. And so we're like, hey, no problem. We've been on the road all day. We'll, you know, so if, if you're an American and you've been on this long road trip with someone and like, hey, let me just introduce you to my wife and my kids, how long do you think that's going to take? Maybe like five minutes, right? I mean, we're thinking, hey, look, it's, we all know we've been in the car for a long time. We're kind of sick of each other at this point. We just need a break, okay? So we, we go to this guy's place where he stays, like an apartment um, room, and his wife and his kid is there, and we sit down, and they want to make tea, and they want to have snacks, and they, I mean, we're there forever, and it just so hit me, like, this is a cultural clash, right? We value, in America, we value efficiency and promptness, right? Those are some of our values. Where we were at in Africa, they didn't value those things at all, right? Church started when everyone showed up, Church ended when everyone left. I mean, there was no real time. You just kind of arrived, and people were there singing and dancing, and it, was, and it was wonderful. It was beautiful. But that was a cultural clash. Now, that promptness and uh, the efficiency and all those kinds of things, that's not right or wrong. That's just a part of culture that we have. That Those things aren't, aren't sinful or righteous or anything like that. This is the way things are. But there's also a part of culture that would be moral. So in our culture, it's, it's okay to have an abortion. It's, it's legal to have an abortion. There's also things like materialism and gay marriage. And there's other things that we see in Scripture that Scripture addresses that in our culture may be acceptable or may be something that's celebrated. And so we have to look at, as we talk about culture, we have to begin to discuss and discern, God, what part of our culture, as we engage culture, as we engage people, what part of culture is the part that is not sinful, not moral per se, but more or less amoral or just, just part of the way we do things, or what part of our culture is the part in which God has called us to address, the part that... God's word addresses itself. Now, there's a few different options for us as, as believers in engaging with culture, okay? As believers, as a church, we have option number one of engaging with culture of a it's an us versus them mentality. It's really, it's combat mode, right? We're, we are against these things. Here's where we stand, and it's going to be a fight the whole way through. Another way of approaching culture would be is in an unengaged approach to culture. We just withdraw. Who cares? Man, that, that whole place is going to hell in a handbasket, so we're just going to stay over here on our own side and make sure everything's okay with us and kind of circle the wagons to protect ourselves from the invading culture. A third way would be to think of it as just, just go with it, right? If this is the way culture is going, why fight go against the, the flow, why don't we just kind of go with it and see where it leads us because it's too hard and there may be persecution, it may be too costly for us as a people or as a church to go against it, so we're just going to go with it. A fourth way in engaging with culture is this, is it is to engage 
with grace and with truth. It's engaging culture with grace and truth. And I believe what Jesus Christ is calling us to as his people, as his prophetic people, is to engage culture with grace and truth. Let's look over at first, uh, John, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 17. And this is John's introduction to Jesus Christ. As he begins to introduce us to the person and work of Jesus Christ, and all that he's going to do, we read this about Jesus Christ. And I love this verse. This is what it says about Jesus. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Wasn't just grace, wasn't just truth. It was grace and truth together, perfectly embodied in Jesus Christ. Perfectly graceful, perfectly truthful, all the time. Grace and truth. And as we talk about culture in general, I want us to move to thinking about engaging with people specifically who are in our culture. Because culture is this kind of vague thing that's out there. But as we begin to discuss culture, we have to understand what we're really talking about is people. People who are in our culture, people who are all around us, at work and in our neighborhoods and in our church and, and everywhere else, there's people in culture. And so how do we as believers in Jesus Christ, professing his life and death and resurrection, walk alongside of people who do not confess God? who do not confess Jesus Christ as their Savior? How do we gracefully and truthfully dialogue and interact with people all around us? How do we do that? The temptation for us at times, and I've seen this over and over and over again, is to label and categorize people in such a way that it stifles relationship. It destroys relationship. When we begin to categorize and label people, man, that that does a work of destroying relationship. Think of it like this. How many of you had a paper route when you were younger? Paper route, anyone? Okay. The faithful few. Paper route. It's great. It's a great way as a child to learn to get up early and get those newspapers on in the right place and all those things. Well, before the advent of, or the mass use of credit cards, as a paper boy you had to go around and collect money, right? Do you guys, if you had a paper, I remember this, you had to go around and collect money. This is before the time of, you know, getting online and paying your bill with a credit card. This was, you had to actually go to a person's house and you'd get like a punch card and you'd, you'd get the $5 for the month or whatever it was and you'd punch their ticket and you'd punch your ticket so they matched and then you'd give them back their ticket. Well, we did this, my brother and I, we had a paper out for a long time, five or six years and while I was in junior high and high school, and I went to collect from this guy, and I went to his house, and what had happened is at some point, I think what it, he, he was going to pay me for double the time before, and so I, I think I punched his ticket or something like that, and then he came back and said, I'm only going to pay for one, for half of that, for like, only going to pay for two weeks instead of the month. So the next time I go to collect, I'm like, hey, look, I accidentally punched your ticket, and you know, you only paid for half, so I got to collect the other half at this point. He says, whoa, hold on a second you've got two punches or whatever. And so he thinks I'm trying to rip him off. Now, 
this guy was a cheap Dutchman, so that should have been my first clue at like, this isn't going to be easy, you know? So, so this guy, so we proceed to argue and disagree over how much he owes me, and, and in the end, he never paid me, and he just assumed <clears throat> that, that the, you know, 16-year-old kid who's collecting the money probably needed something, you know, needed some extra money for lunch, and so I'm trying to get all I can from this guy, and and in the end, it was just—it was a terrible experience because here I am. I'm trying to collect the money from him, which was rightfully belonged to me, so I can pay my bill to the newspaper company. And he's thinking I'm a thief and trying to rip him off. And there's nothing, there's there's no feeling like it when you feel like you've been misunderstood and labeled. Because going forward from that point on, that relationship is now really, really awkward. I mean, it's hard to have a conversation with someone in your mind thinking, the only thing they're thinking about me is I'm trying to rip them off, I'm trying to take advantage of them. I'm trying to, to really get all I can from them. It makes things really, really awkward. And if you've ever been misunderstood by your boss or your spouse or a coworker and subsequently labeled or, or something like that, you know exactly how that feels. It's a terrible feeling. No one likes feeling that way. It, re- it creates an adversarial relationship. But we can do that as well. When we begin to say things like, they always do things this way, that's, just the what, that's always what they say, here's how they are thinking, we begin to label and categorize people outside of our church or outside of our family or outside the, the community, and it creates an us-versus-them mentality. And as we consider how, as God's people, we engage with culture, we need to be careful that we come with grace and truth, not in us versus them. Because that will stifle and deteriorate relationship. I want to just show a couple of pictures if we have them. I'm going to scroll through these. These are real pictures, real signs. You can go to the next one. If you think about that, that those things are happening in our country in the name of religion oftentimes, and those, that kind of mentality, it destroys relationship. At that point, when you hold up a sign like that, it, the relationship ceases. There's no more conversation to be had. And we as God's people need to be full of truth and full of grace. That we are the kind of people that says, look, we can dialogue. We can discuss. We can talk. We can come alongside. We can love. I want to just turn over to a few chapters, to John chapter 8. To John chapter 8. And this is, this is a, a section of Scripture that I'm sure if you've been in church for any amount of time, you're familiar with. <clears throat> We're going to start reading in John chapter 8, verse 2. And I think this... This perfectly depicts this, this picture of Jesus Christ is full of grace, full of truth. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in their midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. 
Now in the law of Moses, Moses commanded us to stone such woman. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger in the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote in the ground. But when they had heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No, Lord. No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Grace. Go. And from now on, sin no more. Truth. Grace and truth. And I think so often when we see those, those signs and we see the, the, the protesters and the anger, it's like we're showing up with, with rocks in hand ready to, ready to throw. We're showing up with, with, with rocks ready to be hurled. As God's people, we should be the most gracious people on the face of the earth. We have been brought from death unto life. Turn with me over to Ephesians chapter 2. I'm glad Adam read that passage out of Ephesians this morning and said how awesome Ephesians is because we're turning there today. And he is right. This is an awesome, amazing book. I want to start reading in Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to read verses 1 through 10. I want us to just see a picture how this paints who we are and who God is. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So as we look at that passage of Scripture, I want us to ask the question, what has God done? What, has God, what is God doing in this passage of Scripture? What is God at work accomplishing in this passage of Scripture? Well, it says He's rich in mercy towards us. He's loved us with a great love. He's made us alive in Christ Jesus. He's lavished grace upon us. He's raised us up and seated us with Christ. He's given us the gift of faith. He's created 
He's created us anew in Christ Jesus. He's prepared good works for us to do. Now, that's one side of the equation. What's the other side of the equation? What have we done? What's, what's our contribution to this whole thing? We're actually in the negative side of the, of the equation on this one, right? We're following the prince of the air. We're, we're sons of disobedience. I mean, on and on and on. It paints this picture of us prior to coming to faith in Jesus Christ of being without hope. And that's why at the very end of this thing, Paul says, this is a gift from God so that no one can boast. One day we will stand before the throne of God. When we stand before that, that majestic, holy throne, none of us will be able to say, God, I am here because I deserve to be here. No one will be able to say, God, I am here because I've worked so hard to get here. We will say it is all of grace. God, this is a gift from you. All of this. My life, my hope, my faith, it is all a gift from you. I was thinking about an example of, of what this looks like. And this is the one example I thought of, like, well, how, how do we understand this? How can we understand this better as an example? And I thought this is really the difference between, now follow me with this, okay, between fishing and charter boat fishing, all right? So if, you, if you're going to go fishing, what do you need, right? What do you need to go fishing? You need a fishing pole, bait, hook, you need a place to go, right? Boat, you need a, a lake to fish on, you need to know that spot on the lake to fish. You catch the fish, what do you got to do? Take it off, you got to clean it. I mean, there's, there's a number of things that need to happen in order for you to say, I caught a fish, right? You caught that fish. You did all the work, you, did, you knew where to go, you know what you had to use, you brought everything that you needed, you took the fish off the hook. I mean, you did all that stuff. All right? Now, contrast that with charter boat fishing. Okay? I've been charter boat fishing a couple times. It's a great experience. I love doing it. But here's the deal. Right? You show up. You get on a boat that you're not driving. You, you have like 16 fishing poles all coming out of the back of this boat that you didn't bait, that don't belong to you, with lures that that you don't know what, where these things are coming from, in places that you've never been, in water depths that it's impossible for you to get to, and when there's a fish on the line, all you basically do is you walk up to the fishing pole and just reel the thing in. You don't even touch a fish. The, the captain of the boat comes with the net, takes the thing off the line, puts it in the cooler, takes the line, throws it back out again, and so you come home that day, and she's like, how'd it go, man? I'm like, man, I caught some big fish today. Meaning, I, reel, I just reeled this thing in for like five minutes because it's like two miles behind the boat. And then I hand the thing over to the captain to take it. And then he cleans the fish and everything. You do nothing. So technically speaking, you're really not fishing. You're just kind of observing. Well, the captain does all the work, okay? That's not real fishing. I'm sorry if you're on a charter boat or whatever. I'm sorry. But 
as, a, as someone who likes to fish, that is not real fishing. You've added, you've added nothing to the equation, right? If you weren't there, that captain still would have caught that fish. And I think in the same way, when we think about our salvation, in a lot of ways, we just show up. I mean, God's the captain. He's doing all the work. I mean, he's the one who, who knows exactly what we need and when we need it. He is the one who's, who's accomplished for us what we could have never accomplished on our own. He is the one who's, who's doing all the work for us. And in this, that's why Paul at the end says, man, it's a gift from God. And really, he says, our response to that is faith. Our response is faith, is trusting God, is trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ, in his, his life and death and resurrection. That's our response to what God has done. And then Paul goes on to say, even that's a gift from God. Even the faith that we express in God is a gift from him. It truly is in, in, the most amazing gift in all the world. The gift of life and salvation and relationship that he has done for us. And that's what, in going back to Ephesians chapter 1, we're not going to read in there, but it says God has adopted us into his family. And I so appreciate that, the testimony that Ryan Heath gave last week. And Ryan Heath this morning is over at Living Word Church, preaching the same message that he preached here last week. So he's at Living Word preaching that, sharing his message that God gave him over at Living Word this week. But Ephesians 1 begins to describe that we have been adopted into God's family. We have been adopted. And it really isn't, uh, I can't think of a much clearer picture of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ as in the work of adoption. It's bringing us out of one family and bringing us into, into another family. It's when we were not a people, now we are a people. Once we were not God's family, now we are God's family. Once we were without hope, now we have hope. Because of God and working his work of adoption in us, bring us into his family. Look how Paul addresses this issue in 1 Corinthians 6. I know we're turning, turning through a lot of scriptures this morning, but I think it's important for us to just recognize this. As we talk about engaging with culture, our posture before one another, our posture before the Lord, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, This is what Paul writes to the churches. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither will the sexually immoral, the, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And you can just see the church being like, yeah, all those stinking people out there, that's who he's talking about. Then Paul goes on in, in verse 11 and says this, And such were some of you. I mean, I think he silences those voices quickly. And such were some of you. And just as we are about ready to pick up our stones and rocks and say, Okay, look, we're ready to go to battle here. He says, And such were some of you. And at that point, the rocks just have to fall off our hands. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. And such were some of you. 
See, this is the, the amazing message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It changes everything about us. It changes all of who we are. Everything, everything is surrendered to Jesus Christ. And in return, we get relationship and righteousness and family. That is what God Almighty has done in us and through us. That is what he's accomplished in Jesus Christ. And so as believers, as his people, we should be the most gracious people in all the world. Now, remember, there's two sides of this equation. There's the grace and there's truth. Because we're gracious doesn't mean we don't declare God's truth. We do declare God's truth. We'll get to that in just a second. But everything about us is surrendered to Jesus Christ. When we come to him, we surrender everything. God, we, Lord, there's nothing that we can do. We add nothing to this equation. We give you our lives in joyful worship to you. And so as we think about these things and our call as believers to be a gracious people, but to also be a truthful people, we have a, we have a commitment to God. We have a commitment to the Lord because we belong to him, because we're in his family. So when we first got, when we first got married, I had this wicked, awesome truck, right? It's this Dodge Dakota. It had this, this massive engine. I mean, this thing was four by four. It was like, it was it. And you could be on the expressway, you're going about 60, and you could step on the gas and you're at 100 in like seconds, man. It was just awesome. Sorry, Mom. But it was awesome. I didn't do that often, just a couple times. Just to find out what 100 was like. So, but as I got married, and as we had some kids, priorities changed, right? Getting to 100 real fast in the expressway with a couple kids in the car seats, not a good idea, all right? On top of that, we couldn't even put car seats in the truck. So it was just like me and my truck. And as we began to discuss our growing family, we realized that, you know what? The truck probably isn't the best family vehicle to have. We need a minivan, right? So because my commitment towards my family superseded my desire and my need... It wasn't a want, it was a need for a truck. <laughs> I, I turned in my man card and got a minivan. But the reality of it was this. Here's the reality. I'd rather have a minivan full of kids than, and not have a, than have a truck where I'm by myself. And so it was, a, it, was a, it was an absolute blessing, but we traded in. But it was because of that commitment to my family superseded anything else. My own, my own wants, my needs, my desires for a truck, to go real fast, to go, to go through the snow, whatever, whatever that was, there was a greater commitment in my life that superseded how I felt. And as we talk about our commitment to Christ, it really does, it trumps everything else that we may feel. What I, how I spend my money, my sexuality, my use of time, Everything is surrendered to Him. It's a greater commitment. 
It's not how I feel or what I want. It's laying before Jesus Christ saying, God, whatever you would want. God, this is for you. I lay this at your feet. In the same way with us engaging culture, we do so in the manner that says, Jesus Christ, we belong to you first and foremost. And realizing this helps us to understand how do we engage with the culture around us? How do we engage with people all around us? And really for us, understanding the nature of the gospel, understanding the very nature of what Jesus Christ has done and how he has rescued us and delivered us, this creates a humility, a compassion, and a love for people. It absolutely does these things. As we realize where we've been, and such were some of you. And I think back to Travis Maples and his his testimony a few weeks back and him talking about how he had suffered from uh, panic attacks and how he had experienced just being in the emergency room and being hooked up to EKGs and the whole deal with just all the tests and just how terrifying that is. And how someone else who was also experiencing the same kind of panic attacks came to him and, and Travis was able to minister to this person and say, look, I've been where you've been. I know what it's like to be hooked up to EKG machines and have all these nurses and doctors around you trying to figure out what's wrong with you. And there's an, an unbelievable amount of compassion and, and, and care for that that situation because you say, I know exactly what you're going through. I've been there like you've been there. There's sympathy, there's compassion, there's empathy, understanding what that's like. But in the same way for all of us, we've been apart from God's family. We know what it's like to be outside the family of God. And so therefore, we should have the greatest compassion and grace for people outside the family of God because we can say, I've been there too. I've been there too. I've been outside the family. I've been separated from God. I've done my own things. I've gone my own way. I've said those words. I've thought those thoughts. I've done those things. I know exactly what you're going through because we ourselves are apart from God. See, we needed to be rescued. We needed to be redeemed. We needed a Savior. Just like, our, just like the people all around us need a Savior. So therefore, we should be the most gracious people, full of grace, full of truth. Full of grace, full of truth. Because we ourselves know what it's like to be outside in darkness and blindness and not know our way. And we know what it's like to be redeemed and saved. So therefore, let us be a people of grace and mercy, compassion and truth. And we'll get to the truth in the coming weeks as we unpack God's word, what he says about certain things in culture. Or in 1 Corinthians, we'll get there as well. We'll get there two different ways, but we're going to get there. But we're going to talk about the truth. Because we're going to proclaim God's truth as it's revealed in his word but we're going to do so in a way, hopefully, prayerfully, that is humble and is gracious. Because that is what a a dying world does not understand. We see the signs, we see the the protests, we see the, the animosity, and so much of what people see about the church is just those caricatures that we see. We as God's people 
need to offer this gracious truth with humility and love, just like Jesus has done, and just like he's called us to and empowered us to do this. He's not left us on our own. Good news is when we have done those things, and we have when we've been the ones throwing the stones, his grace is sufficient even for that. He offers us forgiveness and life and relationship over and over and over again. We're gonna we're gonna close in prayer. Would you just pray with me as we ask the Lord to make us a gracious people, to forgive us where we have we have been the first to to lob the stones in. So, Lord Jesus, we pray this morning, God, the God of all grace, Lord, that you would make us a gracious people. God, I pray that you would not you would not allow us to remain in our ignorance, in our anger any longer. God, that you would cleanse us of those things. God, where we have thrown stones, where we have said and done things that have not been gracious, I pray you forgive us. God, I pray that you would help us to engage with the people around us in our culture. God, with grace and truth, God, let us not shrink back from declaring your truth, but God, let us do so with grace. Lord, help us. We need you to do this. We need your transforming work in our lives. Jesus, thank you for the work that you have done in us already. Thank you for the gift of relationship and life. Thank you for what you've called us to and who you've made us to be. In your name we pray. Amen.